Father, we ask that as we open up our Bibles, that you would open up our hearts and our minds, and that you would make us attentive to your voice. God, in your word today, would you reveal more of your own heart and your beauty and your glory to us? And would you make us attentive to what you would want to show us? And God, in attending to your voice, in attending to your son Jesus, oh God, would you change us and mold us and shape us to be your people in this world? And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. So about uh, two and a half years ago now, our family moved from Albuquerque, New Mexico to here in Sierra Madre. And when we were living in Albuquerque, we lived in this very eclectic, kind of interesting neighborhood that was down by the university. And it was a bit sketchy. And I remember when we moved to Sierra Madre and we were driving up Ramona, which was the first street we lived on, that one of my daughters said, you know, she said, uh, Daddy, uh, this is such a shady street, but it's shady in a different sort of way than our neighborhood was in Albuquerque. But, you know, one of the things that we loved about this neighborhood that we lived in was the eclectic kind of potpourri of neighbors that surrounded us. There was the Hare Krishnas who lived across the street, and then next door to them was a militant atheist who was engaged in some, you know, kind of like atheism uh, websites and blogs. And then behind them was uh, some of our dear friends uh, who we love to debate a little bit about spiritual matters. Uh, uh, My friend Chris and I, we were going to start a podcast called called Impolite Dinner Conversations because we always loved to talk about religion and politics and we thought it'd be kind of cool. We were on opposing sides to kind of get together and do a blog or do a a podcast like that. And then uh, down the street, there was the struggling musicians. uh, There were the college professors. There were the Mennonites next door. And occasionally we would have a dinner party at our own home and we would host these gatherings and there would always be lively discussions. You know, they knew that I was a pastor And so oftentimes we would get in these uh, kind of spiritual conversations together, talking about deep, meaningful things. And I still remember one evening uh, sitting in my living room with a bunch of our neighbors, and we were kind of engaged in this spiritual conversation. And I must have been pontificating a little bit as a pastor. You know, we do that sort of thing on occasion. And um, uh, the neighbor from across the street, whose name was Darren, who had a PhD in 20th century German postmodern literature, which is just awesome. Uh, He said, you know, he said, I don't know how anyone could claim to know anything at all with certitude about God. I mean, think for a moment just about the immensity of our universe and what a small, minuscule place we play in the grand scheme of things. And how is it possible for any of us to claim knowledge about the divine? And, you know, when he asked that question then, I thought that's a really, really good question. And I still think it's a good question today. You know, according to our resident cosmologist, Hugh Ross, by the way, I don't know this kind of information off the top of my head. This week I had to phone a friend to get some good cosmology information. And uh, Hugh Ross was on standby and uh, he said this, there are 50 billion trillion stars in the observable universe contained in 200 billion galaxies. Stop and just let that sink in for a moment. And then he said that all the stars and galaxies make up just 0.27% of all of the stuff in the universe. So so those 50 billion trillion stars just make up 0.27% of all of the stuff in the universe. 
And then here we are. Uh, we might live 70 or 80 years at most. And here we live suspended on a moat of dust in the beam of just one star among the 50 billion trillion stars. And yet we dare to say that we have some accurate information about the God who created everything. And, you know, I think that uh, our friends who ask questions like, how can you possibly know anything about God? That's, that's a fair question. That's a, that's a legitimate question. And, you know, Christians have said that the, the problem is actually much greater than simply the size of our universe and the smallness of ourselves. Uh, the problem is even more complicated because when you stop to think about God, God in his very essence and nature and being is so completely other than you and me. I don't know if there's anybody else out there, but from time to time, I like it, you know, when uh, one of those uh, programs comes on, on TV that has somebody who's, who eats really weird food. You know, um, recently our family has been watching Alone, and if you've seen this, it's uh, these guys who are stranded out in the Arctic Circle, and they have to survive. And so in order to survive, they're always eating weird stuff. And I I'm not one of those adventurous eaters who just eats anything, but I'm usually interested in what it would taste like if you did eat it. Anybody else out there like that sort of thing? You know, you're kind of like, what does it taste like, you know? And when you ask somebody what a, a tarantula or, you know, a muskrat or a squirrel or frog legs taste like, usually they say it tastes like chicken, right? And so what they're doing is they're drawing upon something that is analogous in your own experience, something you know in order to help you understand something that you don't yet know. But here's the problem with God. God is, like any, is, is unlike anything in your experience and mine. You see, according to the Christian tradition, according to the scriptures, in fact, according to the great monotheistic religions of the world, God is wholly other. God is infinite, whereas we are finite. Uh, God is eternal, and he, is, uh, he's, he's, he goes on and on, and he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, but you and I, we have a beginning and an end. So how is it that we who are finite and limited, how is it that we could ever know something about this infinite and eternal God? There was a great essay uh, written uh, back in 1961, by the British author C.S. Lewis in response to uh, the, uh, uh, the, the Russians putting a man into outer space. And so the Russians put a guy into outer space and when he came back, you know, the premier of Russia at that time, Khrushchev, you know, it, of course, Russia at the time was a communist, you know, atheistic Russia. Khrushchev, after that, he boasted, he said, we flew into space and we did not see God there. And C.S. Lewis responded to this quote with an essay entitled The Seen Eye. And in this essay, he said this, he says, look, if there is a God, then you would never relate to that God as somebody on the first floor were to relate to someone on the second floor. You know, and how do you get to know somebody on the second floor if you live on the first floor? Well, you go upstairs and you introduce them, yourself to them. But he said, God is not of the same order of being as we are. God is wholly other. So you can't just go upstairs. You can't just go into outer space and meet him because God is not an inhabitant of our universe. God is the ground. He is the, the one who coheres and holds together the universe. You can't go out and meet him at some, uh, you know, address that he lives at. 
And so Lewis said this, he said, if, 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 if you are to know God, it would be more like if Hamlet and Shakespeare were to ever meet and get to know each other. And he said this, if Hamlet and Shakespeare were to ever meet, it would have to be at Shakespeare's doing because Hamlet could initiate nothing. And Lewis was saying, look, if we are ever to meet God, it has to be at God's own initiative. God would have to choose to reveal himself to us. And this is what the scriptures proclaim to us. This is what they teach. This is what the Christian tradition has always taught is that God in his very essence and being is love. And love is always desiring to make itself known to the beloved. And God has chosen to disclose. He has chosen to reveal. He has chosen to make himself known to us. And this evening, what I want to talk to you about just briefly from the book of Colossians is the central way in which God has chosen to make himself known to us. And this is uh, taught to us here in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. So uh, just to kind of set this little phrase we're going to look at tonight in its context, uh, this stands at the very first line of a poem that is inserted here in the book of Colossians. So we began a new series in this little letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Colossae a few weeks ago. We've been kind of moving through it at a snail's pace, and you can tell we're not picking up real speed tonight because we're just looking at a phrase in verse 15. But tonight we come to uh, this poem, and almost all the scholars say it reflects all of kind of the qualities and characteristics of a poem. There's repetition, uh, there is balance, uh, you know, the, the first stanza sort of uh, matches and corresponds to the second stanza. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to be pulling this apart and looking at it in detail. But tonight, I want to just draw your attention to the first phrase because it it tells us how God has revealed himself to us, how God has disclosed the fullest truth about himself to humanity. And it says it like this in verse 15. It says, he is, he there is speaking of Jesus He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn or the preeminent one over all creation. He says he is the image of the invisible God. Now, there's at least two ways in which this this phrase, he is the image of the invisible God, should be read. And so the first thing he could be telling us, and I think he is telling us, is that Jesus is full and true humanity. You see, when you hear that phrase, image of God, what comes to mind for some of you, if you've been Bible readers for your life, you might go back to Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, where we are told that God created humanity in God's own image. In other words, what gives humanity immense worth and dignity, the reason why we ought to treat all human beings equally and fairly and give them honor and respect and dignity is because all of us have been created in the image of God. But the image of God has been marred in each one of us. We no longer reflect God's image to the world. Instead, we reflect a marred visage. We reflect a marred image. In other words, a lot of us live life in sort of a subhuman existence where we are crippled by anxiety, anyone out there? Paralyzed by fear, defensive because of our own deep insecurities, enslaved to drugs or alcohol or overcome with anger or unforgiveness. And all of this stuff, it cripples 
cripples our humanity so that none of us lives fully as a human being is intended to live. And I think at least one thing that, that the apostle is telling us here is that Jesus is full and true humanity. Jesus is, in other words, the true and better Adam. Jesus reveals to us what it means to be fully human. And here's the good news about Christianity. Jesus came in order that you and I might learn to become fully human. In other words, Jesus didn't come simply to make us more religious. Jesus came to make us more human. And to be a disciple of Jesus is to be a trainee. It's to be an apprentice to Jesus, learning from the one who is full and true humanity how we should live. He is the true image of the invisible God. He is true and full humanity. You know, it's been said, or it was said by Jean-Paul Sartre, everything has been figured out except how to live. And Jesus has come to teach us how to live. He has come in order to help us regain and restore our full and true humanity. And so number one, when it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, he's telling us something about true humanity. He's saying that Jesus is the embodiment of full and true humanity. But he is saying something much more than that in this text. Because notice right on the heels of this, he says that he is the firstborn over all creation. Now, when he talks there about Jesus being the firstborn, he's not, uh, in the ancient world, the, 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 the term firstborn, uh, the, the Greek word was prototokos or something of that nature. If you're taking notes, don't write that down. I probably mispronounced it. But don't worry, Greek or, or uh, Koine Greek is a dead language, so almost nobody knows how it's pronounced. So usually uh, when you're in seminary, they tell you, just say it confidently, and the congregation will think that you know what you're talking about, even when you don't know what you're talking about. But this word firstborn, it doesn't mean first in the line of succession. It means first in the place of importance. And in the ancient world, uh, the one who was the firstborn was the preeminent one in the family. That was the one to whom all of the inheritance belonged. The firstborn was preeminent over the whole family. And he's saying here that Jesus is preeminent over the whole creation because through Jesus, all things were created that were created, things in heaven and things on earth. A little bit later, he says that the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus in bodily form. In other words, Jesus is not only full and true humanity, Jesus is full and true divinity. Jesus is 100% God, but he's also 100% man. And so if you want to know what God is like, then you look at Jesus. Jesus is the fullest disclosure of God's true self. He says here that Jesus is the image. That word image can be translated the representation or the manifestation of the invisible God. God is holy other. He is different from us. He is holy, holy, holy. He is full of glory. He dwells in light, inexpressible, and full of glory. How can we know him? And, and what this text is saying is that Jesus is the manifestation of what God is like. He is the representative, the image of the invisible God. But let's press this a little bit further. You know, there are different ways in which God has sought to make himself known to humanity according to the Christian tradition. Uh, God gives us glimmers about himself in various ways. And so, for example, we get a glimmer of who God is through the world that he has made. 
Uh, Romans chapter one puts it like this. For what may be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived through the things that he has made. In other words, you can look at the world that we inhabit, and by the things that have been made, we can learn, we can discern, we can use our mind, and, and we can come to conclusions about the God who we don't see by looking at the things he has made that we do see. Or as Psalm 19 puts it, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above shows forth his handiwork. Day by day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge, and there is no speech and there are no words whose voice is not heard. Which is just a fascinating thing to say. He says, look, uh, there's not a language in the world that people cannot hear the voice, they cannot hear the words that are given to us through the stars. There's a witness, there is proclamation in a starry night, and it proclaims to us something of the glory of God and his majesty. You know, this last week, I was uh, listening to a debate uh, with the late Christopher Hitchens. And some of you might not know uh, Christopher Hitchens is, but he was a, a brilliant, or rhetorically brilliant, I should say, and very you know, strong opponent of Christianity. He was an atheist. And oftentimes get in debates with uh, theists and whatnot. But I was listening to a debate that he had with a, 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 an, another a scientist uh, this week. And it was fascinating because in the course of the debate, he referenced Stephen Hawking and the fact that there are, you know, uh, 2 billion trillion or 200 billion trillion stars out in the galaxy and so on and so forth. And he made the statement, and I, I wrote this down after he said it because I, I thought it was interesting. He said, why would the universe be so large when the earth is so small? He says, God must be incredibly inefficient and wasteful to create such a, a universe full so large as this one. And, you know, the ancient poet who wrote the Psalm 19, he says, you know, God wasn't inefficient. and He didn't look up at the stars and say inefficiencies. You know, a God who is eternal and immortal, who has no beginning and no end, and who has all the time in the world in his hands, like, he doesn't need to be efficient, you know, I need efficiency because I got a family. You know, I got a lot of work to do in the week. You know, we got a lot of stuff that needs to get done. You know, I got to be efficient, you know. Uh, I got to be efficient with my words. I got to use an economy of words when I'm preaching because it's hot and I don't have your attention for much longer. Can I get a witness? But God doesn't need efficiencies. They looked at it at the, the heavens and didn't see inefficiency. They saw glory. They saw mystery and transcendent beauty and wonder and immense power that brought this whole thing into being. You know, the ancients were not like secular modern people who oftentimes are so absorbed in technology that they can't pause for a minute and be caught up in the wonder of creation around us. There's a song I love by an artist whose name is Bruce Coburn, and he says this in the song. He's got this lyric. He says, you can't tell me there is no mystery. It's everywhere I turn. 
And so we can discern something of the beauty and the majesty and the glory of God through the things that he has made if we have eyes to see and ears to hear. But, you know, we can also discover something. We get glimmers of who God is, not only from the world that he has made around us, but he's also revealed himself to us through uh, the scriptures. You know, in the, the, this book right here, uh, we oftentimes refer to it as a book. I just did. But this is not really a book. This is a collection of ancient writings, ancient sacred writings, written by a various number of authors over several hundred years on different continents and in different languages. And this is no mere collection of ancient writings, though. According to the Christian tradition, according to its claim about himself, and according to Jesus of Nazareth, these writings contain for us something of the voice of God. They give us revelation about God. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 puts it like this. It says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, he says that uh, people spoke or they wrote from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the word described, uh, describing to be carried along, it's the same word you would use to describe wind that is carrying along a sailing vessel as it blows and the, the sail captures the, the power of the wind and it pushes it along. And when the sailing vessel is moving along, it is the sailing vessel that's moving. And it is the, the wind is using the very stuff of that sailing vessel in order to move it along. And yet the power that drives it is outside of itself. And the, 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 Peter is describing the authors of scripture that way. That even though, you know, they had different uh, intellectual capabilities, different writing styles, uh, they wrote with different genres, some poetry, uh, some narrative, some using ancient legal codes, uh, others apocalyptic visions, sometimes writing letters or biography. No matter, though, though they use different genres and they, they wrote in different ways, uh, what, what, what the, the Christian tradition has always said is that they were empowered or they were inspired by the Holy Spirit so that they wound up writing that which God wanted in order to communicate something of who he is to his people. And Paul interestingly describes his own role as an apostle and as an author of scripture in chapter one of Colossians down in verse 25. Look what he says. He says, of this, I became a minister according to a stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery that was hidden for ages and generations, but has now been revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul says there that God chose to make known to us something of the mystery of his plan for the world that was hidden. He disclosed it, but he used Paul, who was a vessel, who was like a sailing ship that was carried along by the Spirit so that he was able to communicate through his own personality, his own writing style, his own deficiencies, that which God wanted to be said. And so, we know we can discern something about God through the scriptures that he has given to us. We can discern something about God through creation. But, you know, oftentimes, you know, the witness of creation can be cloudy. 
you know, I don't know if you've seen one of those wildlife animal shows, you know, where you see a gazelle, you know, gracefully running through, you know, the fields in Africa or something, and then a, a lion charges after it and tears it apart. And you think, what does that reveal to me about God? You know, the witness of creation can be cloudy. And even, of course, the Old Testament scriptures in particular can be fuzzy, can be cloudy because there's portions that are difficult to understand and stories that seem jarring and violent and strange and odd and, and it's foreign. It was, it's so old and ancient and we're thinking like, what do I make of this? What am I supposed to get about God from this? But what Paul tells us in Colossians 1 is that the fullest disclosure of God's self doesn't come first through creation or even through the Old Testament scriptures, but God's fullest disclosure of his self comes to us through Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God. Or as John 1 puts it, no one has seen God at any time. But the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. In other words, in Jesus, the clouds break open and the full light of God's glory breaks into humanity in the face of Jesus Christ. There's this uh, little incident in the Gospel of John, who is one of uh, Jesus' biographers. He records this incident, a conversation between uh, Philip and Jesus. And Philip looks at Jesus one day and he says, Jesus, just show us the Father and it will be su sufficient. And Jesus responds, he says, Philip, have I been with you so long? Do you not yet know that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Or as another early Christian theologian wrote to a letter uh, to the Hebrews, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. It is through Jesus, it is through the lens of Jesus that we can look back on the Old Testament scriptures and start to reinterpret them and read them rightly and understand God more fully. It is through the lens of Jesus that we can start to properly interpret who God is and what he is about in this world. Because in Jesus, the unknowable, invisible God becomes visible and seen and knowable. In Jesus, we discover what God is like. We discover something of the sacrificing love of God. In Jesus, we learn of the humility of God that washes feet and the hospitable welcome of God that touches the untouchables and that loves the unlovables. We learn something of the joy and delight of God that eats with sinners and that spins stories to, to make points. The wisdom of God, as he teaches us how to live, we learn about the meekness of God. We learn about the challenge of God to self-righteous, self-satisfied religious people. We discover something of the intimate love of God. This is the God we meet in Jesus. As one writer put it, Jesus is tenderness without weakness. He is strength without harshness. He is humility without the slightest lack of confidence. Unhesitating authority without a with a complete lack of self-absorption. Unbending convictions without the slightest lack of approachability. Power without insensitivity. Enthusiasm without fanaticism. Holiness without Phariseeism. Passion without prejudice. Nothing he does falls short. In fact, he's always surprising you and taking your breath away because he's so incomparably better than anything you could imagine for yourself. Why? 
because these are the surprises of perfection. In the person of Jesus, we discover what God is like. In the person of Jesus, the unknowable God becomes known. And let me just close by saying this. Why is it that God has revealed himself to humanity at all in the first place? And why in such a personal, close, and intimate way? You know, there, there are all kinds of ways in which God could have been content with revealing himself to us. He could have simply sent us a uh, list of propositions about himself that we can memorize and get down. Uh, he could have sent us a list of condemnations about ourselves and all of the ways in which we fail to live up to what he wants us to do, which actually you can get from reading the Bible if you read it carefully, amen. <laughs> but he, came to come to, he chose to come to us personably, close and intimately by taking upon our humanity. And why did he do that? Well, because God doesn't simply want you and me to know about him. He doesn't simply want to communicate information. God wants us to enter into a relationship with himself. In other words, God knows you deep all the way down, and God wants you to know him. God knows your heart. He looks down into the crevices of your heart and sees everything that's there, good, bad, and ugly. And he loves you still. And he invites you. He wants us to know him. And so he discloses himself to us in Jesus. And listen, if you are brand new to this whole thing, if you're kind of investigating Christianity, I just want you to know that Christianity is not first and foremost about you becoming religious it's not simply about you, you know, turning over a new leaf and trying to be a better person. It's not even about you getting correct information in your head about God. Christianity, first and foremost, is about God entering into a relationship with you. You know, I haven't always been a pastor. Uh, there was a time in my life when uh, I was just a young punk surfer kid growing up in Southern California, born and raised in Long Beach and uh, getting into trouble and ditching school and going surfing and all this stuff, you know. And um, there was a point in time in my life from my sophomore year to my junior year in high school where I started to read the Bible. And in this space of time, God began to do work in my life. And I began to meet God personally and experientially. And as a junior in high school, my life was transformed by this Jesus. And I have never been the same again since. And I was thinking uh, today about my wife, Alicia, who she came to faith in Jesus when she was nine years old. Her parents had a, uh, you know, they, they went through a, a rough patch in their relationship and uh, they had gone to a Billy Graham crusade and they heard the gospel and their lives were just dramatically turned upside down. And they came home and Alicia said it was like somebody turned on a light bulb in the house and the darkness fled away. And as a nine-year-old, she came to faith in Jesus and and uh, I, I remember, you know, there's a time when she was, you know, reading little excerpts from her little journal, you know, as a 11, 12, 14 year old. And there was such intimate talk about this young, you know, middle schooler and the creator of the universe. And it almost sounds absurd, except for that it's not. 
except for that at the heart of the universe is absolute, eternal, unbreaking community of love that is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this God has come into the world in Jesus so that we might know him and come into a relationship with him. And that relationship is available to you and me freely through the work that he has done for us on the cross, if we will come to him and just receive him into our lives and we welcome in, uh, this relationship with himself. You know, the, the, the scriptures at one point says, be reconciled to God. You know, you're, you're, you might be in a broken relationship right now with God. Be reconciled to God. You can come to him and, and you can welcome him into your life and he will come in and he will change you. But you know, this isn't just a knowledge that you need at a one-time event in your life. This knowledge of God, it begins when you welcome him into your life, but it continues all throughout. And so tonight is really an invitation for us to continue on the journey of plumbing the depths of all of the knowledge and beauty and glory of God that we can discern in Jesus by our ongoing study of the gospels and reading through there about Jesus, by our ongoing contemplation and meditation and prayer, just drawing near to God to continue to cultivate that relationship with him. I want to invite our band to come up right now, and I'm just going to pray over us as we end our time together. Our great God and Father, we come to you now and we thank you that you have not left us to ourselves, O oh God, on this moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. But God, you have come near us in Jesus. You have revealed your heart to us so that we might know you and enter into a relationship of love with you. And I pray, O oh God, that you would enable us to pause from all of the distractions, from all of the devices, from all of the entertainment, from all of the shopping, from all of the incessant news, from everything that continually occupies our imagination and our attention. And God, would you give us space even this week to draw near to you and to cultivate our life, our relationship with you so that we might know you in a more deep and intimate way. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.